Hi, I'm Scott Cooper, and this is the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I had the opportunity to visit the headquarters of Soccer.com in North Carolina. I also had the privilege to meet Mike and Brendan Moylan, who generously agreed to sit down and chat about the origins of Soccer.com in 1984 and the journey they've been on for 40 years while building a hugely successful business. Beyond selling soccer gear, They've been a big player in growing our game in the U.S. by not only bringing equipment the rest of the world was using, but also telling stories of the international game through their catalog. Congratulations on 40 years of bringing the equipment the world has to offer to us and to being such a huge part of the growth of the beautiful game in the United States. Thank you. So, who wants to go first? You're older. I am. So, tell me about, like... What made you guys come up with the idea of Eurosport way back in 1984, since this is the 40th year? Um, how, how did the idea come about, and, and how did you guys go about making it happen? Well, Brendan and I went to a high school where it was, um, in order to graduate, you had to do something called the Senior Project, and it was basically writing a letter to yourself in 15 years, where, where you thought you would be in the future, uh, sort of... The real focus was taking your avocation and making your vocation or, or taking your hobby and making a career. So um, we grew up in a big family. Everybody played and uh, we sort of had a, a common challenge as sort of young soccer players living in the South was just not being able to find the gear that you're looking for. Right. So um, when we traveled, either, you know, on the teams we played for or or with our family, we would always sort of seek out uh, the local soccer shop or um, when we were traveling uh, in Europe, just going to any department store that sold soccer gear. So with that, we, we felt like maybe there's other guys, uh, other players like ourselves that are having the same issue. So um, the senior project was um, creating a catalog with high quality, hard to find soccer gear at a reasonable price um, that you could ship through the mail. That was the game plan. And we came up with the name Eurosport because anytime we spoke to anybody about the idea of what was just a project to start with, um, the common refrain was soccer, that's a that's a European sport or that's a Eurosport, right? So with that, we leaned into it sort of with a little bit of humor and a nod to the fact that this that's what this was. And um, uh, my dad, our dad, um, just thought the concept was kind of interesting. So he asked us if we'd be interested in sort of taking the idea and turning it into a real business. He had grown up uh, on a family dairy and like the idea of family business. Um, and while I, I'm not sure he thought that the overall concept was going to be successful, he liked the idea of sort of investing in two of his six kids uh, to make something happen. So um, that was the spring of 1984, and we launched uh, the first catalog, the Eurosport, the end of June of that year. Okay, so you were in college or out of college at that point? High school. So you're in high school. school. We're high school. Yeah. Okay, so 
Uh, let's back up one second. So what was the soccer scene like back in the early 80s and you know, late 70s? And, you know, what were your options to buy equipment and that sort of thing? Well, you know, I mean, the, the scene was, um, you know, we were, I, I think, probably consider ourselves very fortunate to grow up um, in the Durham, Chapel Hill, Raleigh area, because uh, there was a lot of soccer, actually. Um, relative to the rest of the United States. I mean, there with I think having three large universities in the area, you're bringing people not only from around the country, but around the United States. So um, before we lived here, um, Michael and our oldest brother, Sean, played in a youth soccer league in Madison, Wisconsin. And then um, we moved here in 75 and there was already um, a local youth league called Rainbow Soccer, which is actually still in existence, and was founded in the early 70s um, by some uh, people who had played at UNC. So there was there was soccer there was soccer available, and I think we probably played on some of the earliest um, club teams here in North Carolina as well. Uh, in terms of finding soccer equipment, I mean we always sort of talk about. It. I mean back then. Um, you know, this was sort of pre-mall, so every town had, or any big town had that local family-owned sporting goods company. We had Durham Sporting Goods, and you went into Durham Sporting Goods, and, you know, on the shoe wall, there was a lot of tennis, a lot of basketball, a lot of court shoes, and then maybe two or three cleats, and those two or three cleats were for soccer, they were for football, they were for baseball. You know, if, if the town, if the girls played field hockey, they were for field hockey. I mean, that was it. So there wasn't a lot of product that would say soccer specific or as a person who likes soccer, I'm wearing this product and it identifies me as a soccer player. But at that time, there were a lot of, you know, Nike wasn't the behemoth that it is now. So you had a lot of European-based companies, Theodore, a lot of, and obviously these are still around Puma, you know, all these companies who had distributors here in the United States and they were all European based companies and they all made soccer cleats equipment. And so these distributors had all the soccer stuff that no one was buying. And then all of a sudden in, you know, 84, 85, we come along and are like, no, that's exactly what we want to buy is all this product that, you know, the, the Europeans kept shipping to you. So, I mean, that really got people excited about what we were doing. And so what did you, do you what was your after high school playing experience? Did you, did you guys play beyond high school or? Michael played at Georgetown. I okay. did not play. Okay. Okay. And so like you were like out of high school, you're just running a company all of a sudden. <laughs> Well, we had the benefit of a big family, so, uh -huh. you know, I'm number two of six, Brendan's number three, so, um, you know, we had brothers and sisters that were local. Brendan went to school at Duke, so he mm -hmm. stayed local here, and, uh, you know, as any family business, everybody sort of blends in, so our mom was instrumental in um, not only just creating the culture, because I think, you know, when you have a 16 and 17-year-old guys um, who've never done anything in their lives, you know, beyond maybe picking up their room and maybe uh, not, maybe not. <laughs> uh, you know, you needed a framework in order to make it work. So the benefit was is that, 
our mom, you know, who was a nurse, um, but had spent her life raising these six kids and being around the game um, and uh, had been a big part of the local soccer community. It was just natural to have her involved. So, you know, when, when I went to school, you know, the old adage would go that, you know, most kids would leave, a, you know, a cat or a dog or a fish. And, and I left this business to our mom to help run and, uh, you know, was on the phone all the time and on weekends and every school break um, when I wasn't playing, you know, I was back in town. And right. so from that perspective, the, the business that we wanted was about selling boots, bags and balls. Um, shirt, shorts, and socks. But the other side was that we saw a need in the uh, soccer community nationally for sort of a voice of what was happening in the game globally. And so uh, the catalog transitioned from just selling product to really telling the stories, um, you know, giving some insight to, you know, players like ourselves about really what was happening. So even though the, the news was dated or the pictures were dated, um, for a lot of people, that was the only time they were really reading about it. So um, when that catalog came through the mailbox, you know, at their, at their house, um, it had their name on it, the player's name on it. It really spoke to them. And the benefit for us was is that, you know, uh, you know, we started off with a mailing list of about 8,000 people. But every time that catalog, um, you know, got onto uh, a team, each one of those players would reach out to us and ask for the catalog. So it was um, a very effective marketing in the sense that uh, our customers spread the word um, significantly. So in the first year, we did about $90,000. and. Uh, after about four years, we were doing close to a million dollars. So mom was doing a great job growing the business and um, we would uh, both work full time again when I finished school and Brendan finished school the next year. Right. So how did you get it from just the idea to working with vendors to how was that like work done? Were you guys just calling people up? Were you driving over and, and talking to the Adidas I mean, in the U.S. or no, I mean, they they all had. I mean, at this juncture, everyone had independent sales reps. Okay. So you, uh, we actually, um, we knew a couple of the sales reps, our family members of the sales reps, and um, so it was filling out a credit application. You know, as you know, the the idea was a catalog business, but back then they insisted that you have a retail store. So we had a, a retail store as well, but um, having, it, it, didn't, it wasn't started in our garage, but we stored the initial amount of product in our basement. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would come in, show product, we picked it, and then we stored it in the basement till we moved it to this little retail store. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, but still primarily it was all catalog ordering. I mean, always, yeah, always, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, I mean, the, the retail store didn't even have its own bathroom. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, it was yeah. small. small and as inexpensive as you could possibly manage. Uh, but I think what they wanted to avoid was back then people were selling out of the back of 
publications. So, um, you know, there was Soccer America, there was uh, Soccer Monthly, there was all these, and they had little, you know, placement ads in the back, and they didn't want that to be the place where you uh, sold from. So, um, even though we were, you know, were producing a catalog and, and spending money on a catalog, we were still sort of seen as these placement ad guys or thrown into that group. So we had to differentiate ourselves on that side. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, we were 16 and 17 and anytime we would hold a meeting or people would come for the first time, they would sort of wait in anticipation of somebody else coming in because an adult, an adult, right? <laughs> so they didn't really, no one was saying, you know, when they were placing these orders, um, the Adidas guys, the Puma guys weren't saying we're selling it to these 16, 17 year old guys. I mean, they were like, it's just a company, they're focused on soccer, this is how it's going. Because I think they felt, uh, and probably rightfully so, if they told people it was two high school kids, there's no chance they would have opened this up. But, um, uh, you know, in a very short period of time, uh, we found an audience, we found people exactly like ourselves, and the benefit was um, that by the time we had achieved, you know, uh, uh, enough of a following out there, it the the secret was out that you know we were now in our early twenties, um, but the size of the business was was significant, and so um, whereas I don't necessarily know that we were taken seriously the business itself stood on its own right so what were some of the early challenges i mean obviously there was an audience but you know what kind of kept you guys up at night and and uh made you stress out over starting a new business well what kept us up at night was you know we had no forecasting ability we'd never done this before so mm -hmm. we're learning on the fly so um, you know, we would have days where we would get hundreds of thousands of orders and that's what kept us up at night. We had to pack all those boxes and get them out the door. Um, the, the uncertainty of what you would expect. So we'd mail a catalog, uh, and in the early days we were mailing it once a year and then we did it, uh, once a year in the fall and then once at the holiday and then we're doing it quarterly. And so eventually that sort of grew into monthly. And at that point, um, you know, the demand was significant. So I think, you know, when you start a business, the benefit was we had a lot of people that were looking after us. A lot of people in the community um, would sort of give us insight or ask, you know, are you, how are you guys doing this? And let me tell you how to do it. So I think when you're a kid, the benefit is, is everybody wants to help. They want you to be successful. Think if you started the business today, uh, you know, in in your fifties, um, people you can pay for it, or you know, or unless it's family or friends, you're not getting a lot of it. But back then, I think everybody really wanted us to to make it work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you have to sort of remember as well as the whole consumer catalog space. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, yes, you had the Sears Robot catalog and you had the LL Bean, but there. I mean, really. We were right, sort of right place, right time in terms of a real shift in terms of how people began to shop. And you saw a lot of catalog companies really beginning in that mid 80s time frame. So 
everyone was sort of making it up and trying to figure it out. It wasn't just us out there. So trying to find models, other companies to sort of follow, it was difficult for us. Um, yeah. Because, you know, everyone was out there. Right. Were there other people trying to start in the soccer space? Um, I mean, I think there was all, yeah, I mean, there was certainly a lot of, I mean, I think when people saw, began to see the success we were having mailing a catalog, mm -hmm. um, and there were, I mean, I think in, I mean, if you look back like 94, 95, there were probably seven or eight different groups mailing catalogs nationally, certainly some doing it regionally. Um, so, right. I, I, there was, I mean, I think people saw an opportunity. Right. Um, so then along comes the internet. And uh, I mean, you think that thing's going to work to take off? You think the internet? Well, this is the story I want is how in the world did you guys land soccer.com? I mean, is that one of the most valuable URLs at this point, you know? <laughs> <laughs> As I always say, the story is probably how we didn't land every other really valuable URL <laughs> on the internet as well. Uh, we had gone to the high school we went to, um, had an early high school computer program, and um, you know the computers were networked to a network outside of the school. So I don't know that we would have ever been able to call it, you know, whatever the precursor to the internet or something like that. But we were at you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, aware of these larger networks that existed that were connected with um, computers. We had a friend of ours who had actually worked at the company uh, with us in high school, who was Navy ROTC, who went after he graduated from college and did his um, naval service and um, had some experience um, working on computer networks there. and. Um, came back to work with us after he got out of the Navy. And I mean, we were just having a conversation one day um, with another person here. And they were saying, well, you know, they're, they're gonna launch this, the ability to have your own address on the web, the internet, the you know, World Wide Web. Uh, and you, you know, it's gonna cost you $25 or whatever, and you're, have to call this number, what do you think? And so we were sort of having a conversation. I said, well, let, let's go find Mike. We'll talk about it. Mike was down actually in the warehouse packing orders. And so we went down to the warehouse and we sort of talked to him about it. And, you know, the question then became, well, what do you register? Right. And even then we said, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, people probably look at for soccer, I guess. So, um, we said, well, we'll, you know, register, uh, let's just register soccer.com. And we talked about it. And at that point, you know, the, it was that .orgs were for nonprofits, .nets were for internet uh, providers and um, our technology providers and .coms were for businesses. So we said, well, let's register soccer.com. So on the Friday, um, you know, it's funny, we had to fax in. So it's the internet. We faxed right. it in with, and then called it the payment. And so, I mean, that's the yeah. first, first day you could register, and that was sort of there. there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we didn't really know what we were going to do with it. 
Uh, I think we launched the first website maybe six months later. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that was the, the, the start of it. So was there even internet commerce at that point where people paying online or they're just browsing no. what you had? Basically? I mean, we were probably one of the first affiliate programs for even Amazon. We sold books and uh, DVDs. And so if you go back to the original days, we uh, we were one of the original Amazon affiliates. They've obviously gone on. I think they've been reasonably successful since yeah. that time as well. Oh, but, right. uh, but it was early days for everybody. So for us... Um, yeah, it was just a page. You could, I think you could, you could call a request a catalog. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, was, uh, it was like an informational page more than the, the first site. Right. When, yeah, when did you start adding? We yeah, added commerce. Of... Uh, oh, we had images from the beginning. We probably added commerce in late 95 ish, okay. 96. You could actually um, place. Um, we know the, per, the first person who placed an order lived in Apex, North Carolina. He ordered a pair of Deodora cleats. I've got it somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, so yeah. I think as early as whatever, 95, 96. Right. Uh, we were, we were beginning to take order. And at one point, and I, I mean, we had probably the most robust news web, soccer website. I mean, the, the amount of news content we have was, I mean, even it was amazing. Um, we aggregated news from all around the world. We had, I mean, we had tons of stuff going on. We ran the, before Gmail, we had the, uh, you could have it at soccer.com. We had, a lot of interesting ideas that require a significant more investment when everybody else got into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but we benefited from, uh, you know, a, a, a great group of people working with us who were sort of super enthusiastic about all things that the uh, the internet would provide. And and our head of IT had come from LL Bean, so. Um, she had grown up on the catalog side, but was um, knew the future that was there. And I remember sitting in a meeting and she said, Mike, hear me now, 30% of your orders will eventually come online. Well, 99% of our orders come right. online now, but uh, it seemed unworldly at that point. But um, How long did it take to get to 30%? Probably by... 2002, probably? Yeah, early World 2000s. Cup, yeah. yeah. The World Cup always drove things. Mm-hmm. And then we, in 2006, uh, during the World Cup in Germany, switched from the legacy being Eurosport to becoming Soccer.com, just because uh, it was evident at that point that was where we needed to be. Um, and for those people coming online, we were Soccer.com. So if you grew up on the catalog, if you had history with the catalog, you would always be a part of our uh, uh, foundation, our DNA. But the way you're going to find us going forward was at Soccer.com. Talk about like dealing with that change of, you know, I don't know how much of a shift it would have been for you guys to deal with going from having a call center you're taking orders to you know changing into the new millennium so to speak and and uh 
you know, what what those growing pains were like and how you dealt with it? Well, the benefit for us is coming out of a direct male, uh, it, you know, that, that was our heritage. Um, we were just, it was shifting the way that the orders came in. Now, there's more to it than that, but I think for people that were in brick and mortar, uh, sort of traditional Main Street retail, building out that infrastructure from the call center, the fulfillment to managing customer expectations would take years. For us, it was adapting to new technology um, and uh, people would still place orders, but they would call because the customer base hadn't shifted yet. They were still super interested in utilizing the technology that was online, but they still were interested in calling. I mean, I think. You look at sort of even the transition of like the travel world. Um, people were going to book their tickets online, but they still wanted to talk to somebody about it. So for us, uh, we were we were positioned well. I mean, we we had a ton to learn, but we were positioned pretty well on that side. Yeah, no, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was just a matter of building the infrastructure and hiring people to help you do it, huh? Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of people. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we had so many people who came, I mean, came to us and learned their skills. They were always evolving. I mean, I think that's, I mean, even because of the growth of the business, I mean, people were constantly evolving here. So it was really, I mean, it wasn't like we were going out and hiring tons of new people. One, because the internet, I mean, it was so new anyways. It wasn't like people, you were going out there and hiring someone with 15 years of experience on web design or things like that. What we were doing is taking people who had spent years designing catalog pages and saying, do you have an interest? Do you have an aptitude in, you know, changing, which, I mean, it takes time, but I mean, you know, the, I mean, that's really where the base of our workforce came from, was just people who had been in the business who just evolved into, you know, these new roles or these new technologies. I mean, as Mike said, on the, you know, operational end of things, it, it was, I mean, the, the, the distribution center, I mean, whether it was a phone order, someone called on a phone or an internet, it really didn't matter significantly to them. So, I mean, there are a few areas that impacted the business but I mean, those areas took time. It wasn't like just overnight. We, yeah. Um, also thinking about like, you guys are really, you guys have your finger on the pulse of how the game has grown in the country over the last 40 years, just through how much stuff you're selling, right? I mean, so talk about, you know, how you've seen the game grow in the US and what you attribute it to and um, where you think it's going to be, I mean, in the next, well, I guess we have a World Cup in a couple of years. So, um, yeah. you know, you've, you've had, you've been in business when there was a World Cup here and, and, um, you know, what that was like going through. And I'm sure you guys were a part of that on some level. So, um, you know, just talk, walk through kind of the chronology of how you've seen the game grow. Well, the benefit for us starting in 1984 was it was the beginning of the end for the game in the U.S. at that point. So the NASL would um, cease operations in 1984. Uh, the uh, MISL would survive for a number of years after that, but sort of limp along. 
Um, I think the, the general opinion of the game in the U.S. when the NASL um, collapsed was the it was the end of this soccer dream. So for us, it allowed us to sort of come into a space where everybody from a national perspective who was sort of a traditional sports fan was giving up on the game. At the same time, there was this group of players that were similar in age to us that were, were passionate about it, that you know went to a school where um, soccer was the sport that everybody played if they couldn't make another team, right? If you couldn't play football, you'd go out for the soccer team, right? So from that, there was a, uh, a brotherhood or a sisterhood that was being created that allowed us to speak to that group in a way that they understood the same challenges that we had, they were theirs. Um, we were also going into you know, a time where I think that the, the investment across the board was not happening. So for us to come onto the scene was, was positive for us. And then eventually, um, you know, we would have on July 4th and 88, the World Cup was announced that it's coming to the U.S. in 94. So um, that moment in time, which was again, scrutinized globally that the game was coming to the U.S., a, a country that doesn't have a professional league, that isn't embraced, um, again, put us in a position to be um, the spokespeople in many ways for this game that everybody felt was uh, going nowhere. So um, when that World Cup for 94 was announced, you know, I think people had challenges with some of the other countries that FIFA chose. But at that point, the U.S. was massively controversial. Um, and so, uh, but it did sort of ignite a passion around the existing base here that would allow us to grow. And again, we wouldn't see Major League Soccer come on board until you know, 1996, so two years after the World Cup. So um, it was a barren landscape um, which, as I've said, helped us a lot. Yeah. I, I mean, certainly, I mean, I, I think, I mean, when we think about, I mean, certainly there is the business opportunity in 2026 and, you know, hopefully with the women's tournament coming in 27, uh, you know, but I mean, I think, you know, I mean, as fans, I mean, it's just exciting. I mean, we know the energy um, that these tournaments just bring and it, you know, puts soccer on a, you know, a, a a different level, you know, with the amount of excitement um, that a World Cup can bring into a country. So, um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, we've got the the Club World Cup coming in 25, we have Copa America this year. I mean, there's going to be a lot. I mean, I think, um, you know, when we founded the business in 1984, I think there was one live soccer game on TV that year. And, um, you know, last year they weren't all live, but I think I saw that reason that there were three thousand games televised last year, just something insane. Um, so, um, and it's just going to ramp up as we move towards twenty twenty six. Yeah, I mean, I think the future is you know there was a project to have you know the 
the U.S. win the World Cup um, as the as the as the purpose of the project. Um, with a lot of effort going around, how do we develop better players? And I think that um, you know any country is fortunate to win it once. Obviously, there's some that have won it three times, um, and uh, the purpose ultimately I think now from a the future of the game is success certainly could be measured by winning world championships which we have done on the women's side and um, the rest of the world is caught up I think that what we're seeing on the men's side is the U.S. is catching up to the rest of the world and that the opportunity is there for you know more and more American players to play abroad, to play at the best teams, to play at Barcelona, to play at Juve, to play, you know, at, at Real in the future. I mean, all these opportunities that seemed unheard of are certainly there. So there's a generation of players that don't really have the same boundaries that were, um, you know, happening when certainly we were playing. They, they just weren't American kids collectively going and playing abroad. They just weren't either taken seriously or their skills needed to be developed in a, in a, in a game that was faster, um, more physical. But that's not really the case anymore. So um, I think that the, the future of the game is taking the spotlight. So with the spotlight comes all the good things that happen in the game. With the spotlight also comes um, all the, the challenges that any sport is going to happen when it, when it becomes successful, where it's going to be scrutinized at every level. Um, and uh, I think one of the key important opportunities for the future is just making the game more accessible to uh, more and more kids and um, not to have it pigeonholed into a place where um, – it, it is just about um, the ability to afford it. It's the ability to just be able to play and to, to go forward. Um, <clears throat> what does that look like in your mind? Like, how does that happen? How do how do more kids start playing soccer? I think the success of you know a World Cup drives interest. It also drives participation. What we really want to have is the lasting effect of the. The World Cup in 94 was significant for the next 20 years. Um, the ability to continue to reinvest in the game happened because we hosted that event. Uh, I think with 2026, uh, with the World Cup coming, there's more awareness, there's more expectation. I think it's going to inspire another generation of players. You know, I think when the Olympics come around every four years, um, Everybody wants to run faster, jump higher, and, and achieve their personal bests. I think that when the world comes to the U.S., um, there are going to be kids that are super interested in the game already. It's going to heighten their interest, and it's going to give them a path towards wouldn't it be amazing if. Um, and I think financially, you know, the hope is, is that the investment around the game just doesn't last in that World Cup cycle, that it there's a residual benefit of that that um, 
is able to build legacy, which I think you know the U.S. Soccer Foundation um, has done a great job of investing into urban markets that had previously probably been ignored. There was certainly a lot of players there, but there just wasn't the infrastructure. I think they've done a great job there. I think uh, you know the, the the United States Soccer Coaches um, is doing a great job of you know, looking out and saying, what's the legacy that the, you know, the, the soccer coaches can have in terms of the impact. So my hope is in the next two years, it's not just about the games that are being played, but it's about foundation that they'll be left with. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I mean, in numerous conversations that we're having constantly, I think people are putting out there, um, you know, how, what is going to be that impact that, that it's not the circus that comes to town, the circus pulls up the tent and goes on to the next town. You know, what is it that's gonna be left behind? And participation is on the minds of everyone. Increased participation and lasting participation. Um, not just getting kids at six, seven years old to pick up a soccer ball, but keeping those kids playing at, you know, the soccer cliff at 10 to 12 years old. How do you get them into playing into their middle to late teens? So I think it's a real focus by a lot of different organizations, um, you know, from U.S. Soccer down to you know countless other organizations like Mike has mentioned. Yeah, what kind of um, business opportunities does a World Cup bring for you guys? Uh, you know, I think that anytime there's a big event. Um, it gets people generally excited. A World Cup is great because as a country of immigrants, everybody has a story of where their family came from. And so while they may be, um, you know, an American citizen, they have some ties back to Ireland, England, Scotland, Nigeria, Ethiopia, um, you know, all Eastern Europe that came over the turn of the century. So from that perspective, uh, it brings a level of excitement, but the ability to sort of represent, you know, where you came from. Certainly for us now with uh, the growth of um, the Mexican population in the U.S. and the interest, even what's happening around a World Cup that has Mexico, the United States, and Canada participating, um, it brings together on a global basis, really the first time the three countries have worked together on that side. So for us, um, the new heroes are created. So within that, um, new product, new technology, uh, innovation is going to be driven on that side. Every World Cup cycle brings really you know excitement around um, what's going to show up on the field and from that the current players um, you know aspire to be like their heroes and so for us we not only want to tell the stories we want to give the background in terms of what's happening um, but there's an opportunity to understand the product better to um, yeah, align yourself with your favorite team with your favorite player um, so from that side of things, I think, you know, what we traditionally would have done is catalogs and, and online. I think where we're 
looking now is how can we, um, when the World Cup is here, sort of ex expand our base, get closer to people, make ourselves more local. Um, where do you guys see, keep wanting to say Eurosportsoccer.com yeah. in the next, uh, you know, 10 years? Where do you hope it is? I mean, and, well, and, and yeah. along with the game of soccer in the U.S. I think is you know, we look at it evolutionary. Mm -hmm. You know, you, to go and walk around here today is very different than five years ago. Um, so there's the forward-facing piece that everybody sees, which is how do we represent the game that's more relevant today than we could have possibly done in the past? How can we... Um, you know, influence the lives of players through our ability to connect with uh, their favorite players out there. Uh, internally, it's about how do we make the process better? How do we uh, get orders out faster? How do we create a, a more seamless experience from a customer perspective? So that's from, you know, what we're doing on the website, to what we're uh, doing in the distribution center. I mean, the We've, we've added robotics, we've added uh, all type of automated technology uh, to really sort of keep up with where the game is growing. And you know, I think the success that we are, as a country are having, um, you know, it's our responsibility to sort of reinvest and make those things happen. So, um, you know, I think when we started this business in 84, a business that was 40 years old, would have started at that point in 1944, which just seemed like uh, uh, like a whole other time and place. Um, so I think now when we look at the generation of players that we're servicing, and we started in '84, and in you know in 10 years' time, will be 50 years. It will seem like a whole other lifetime for everyone. Um, but the benefit of starting a business in high school is. You know, we're not getting any younger, but um, with age, uh, whereas we may not be, you know, uh, kicking the ball as much as we used to, um, the community that we've grown up with are the people that are influencing the game today. Mm -hmm. uh, not from a playing perspective, but from an organization. So we see our role as being good stewards of where we've been and, and trying to make it better. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, think about it, you guys, you didn't introduce the game to the country, but you helped, you know, grow it immensely in the, in the country. And, um, I mean, I, I'm grateful for always having the Eurosport catalog yeah. coming to my mailbox when I was yeah. younger. And, um, yeah, it's, it's like you guys are a part of uh, the fabric of the game in this country. So, well, thank you. I, mean, I don't know that we could be paid a better compliment. Yeah. yeah. No. And I mean, you've met the people that that uh, we work with every day, and mm -hmm. each one of those was a soccer pilgrim at some point that sought us out because they saw the same vision that we did as it related to the game and its importance in their lives. And so, um, the benefit for us is they've all been instrumental in in helping us create something that collectively, as a team, um, that you're better on that side. And I think. We played team sports our entire lives, and the one aspect we love about the team was the locker room, right? You, right. 
the before the game, the halftime, and the afterwards. There's something um, magical about a locker room for all the lessons learned, for the nonsense to, you know, how do you collectively figure out the best way to move forward? And so I think when we look at the experiences that we've had here, we use sort of the locker room analogy all the time because it's what we know and it's what's um, helped us to, you know, get here. Yeah. Well, I don't want to, uh, I want to be respectful of your guys' time and not sit through all afternoon. But uh, thank you so much. It's been a privilege to just be here for a few hours today. It was awesome. Well, thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. If you're enjoying the podcast and find it valuable, please consider visiting buymeacoffee.com slash matchplay. These small donations collectively help offset costs and other expenses associated with production of the podcast so I can continue to offer this service for free. Please take an extra minute to rate and review the podcast where you listen. This is a huge help. Share the podcast with whomever you think would be interested and will help in their process. Check us out on matchplayrecruit.com for our social media links. See you on the trail.